You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We are joined today by Allison Baumeister, who completed a 20-year career as an operations officer, chief of station, and senior leader in the Central Intelligence Agency's Directorate of Operations. As a CIA officer, Allison served seven field tours globally, and developed expertise in counterintelligence, counterterrorism, counterproliferation, cyber operations, crisis management, risk mitigation, and running, managing, leading human intelligence operations against critical targets. She had a record of success in denied area operations, interagency collaboration, and leveraging technology for operational success. Following her retirement from the CIA, Allison spent seven years as senior corporate business executive, and then in 2018, after leveraging 35 years of government and private sector experience, Allison became a certified professional career coach and founded Futurity LLC to coach others through successful job searches, career advancement, and career transitions. With that in mind, she's the author of the just published book, Mission Career Transition, a career change guide for intelligence, military, foreign affairs, national security, and other government professionals. And she is a member of the International Spy Museum Board of Advisors. So, Allison, it's it's, it's a pleasure to finally welcome you to SpyCast. We've known each other for, for a bit of time before having you here, but it's great to finally get you uh, on this program. Yeah, Vince, thanks very much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the opportunity to chat with you today. So, I, I, whenever I have a career professional, um, I, I like to get at their origin story. To give you a little bit of background, we, a lot of our listeners out there are early to mid-career intelligence professionals. Many of them are grad students or undergraduate students who are thinking about a career in intelligence. So a lot of them love hearing about someone like you who spent you know, a whole career, got to the very highest levels of agencies. What brought them into this world in the first place? So what made you decide to seek a career in government service? So... I had no affiliation with the CIA, no family members. 
I didn't know anybody. None of my neighbors had ever worked there. But what I did have is a father who had served in the Army Air Corps in World War II. Um, he was in university when Pearl Harbor was attacked and decided like the next day to leave school and sign up for the military. So he joined what was then the Army Air Corps, later became the Air Force, and trained to be a B-17 pilot. He was then assigned to a base in England and he flew bomber missions over Germany. And after about 20 successful missions, his plane was shot down over Germany and he parachuted to safety um, several of his crew was lost in the attack, and he spent 22 months in a German prison camp as a prisoner of war. Um, after, he, after the end of the war, he was repatriated, and he did stay in the Air Force Reserves and was recalled to fly during the Korean War. Sorry, I just want to say that the, the crazy, that's the crazy thing about his bio and I can understand why he was such an inspiration, is after spending 22 months in a POW camp, he stayed in, right? You know, a lot of other people after World War II ended said, I did my job, have a nice day. But he stayed in and then went and fought in Korea. I mean, you can imagine that the, I, the trepidation after spending that much time in a POW camp saying, you know what, I'm going to keep serving, keep doing my, my, my duty. So he... He did leave the service after World War II, but when the Korean War broke out, um, he was in the reserves and was called upon to fly, basically support missions, mostly in the U.S. But yeah, it, it, it takes a lot of patriotism to um, continue to serve after going through an experience like that. So, he never talked about this. It was interesting growing up. like. My mom would tell his story, but my dad really talked very little about his time in the service. Well, that's that's how you know it's real. It's, when, it's, it's the people who, who sit in bars and brag about it that are the ones that are making up stories, but the people who actually were there were the ones that just silently don't want to talk about it. Um, so what what led you to CIA? I mean, why not follow his career into the military? You know, why, why the agency? Well, I was interested in the military. I was particularly interested in the Navy um, and ultimately wanted to become a, a Navy JAG Corps lawyer. But um, I was unsuccessful in passing the PT test to get into the Navy out of college. So um, in parallel, the CIA was recruiting on campus. I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And, you know, I put a resume in a folder and then thought nothing of it and kind of moved on to other things. And then I get this call to come take a battery of tests. So I took a battery of tests and, you know, time goes by and then you hear from them again. They'd like to do an interview you know, in a hotel suite. So this process kind of continued along. They said very little about what they wanted me to do. But 
Um, I knew it would be really interesting, intellectual, amazing work, just based on the reputation of the organization. So I continued to pursue the application process and ended up being hired by them right after I graduated from college. Well, and you came into CIA and, and you're welcome to say, I won't age you, but you're welcome to say what, what years it is. But at one of the most dangerous times in the Cold War, you know, where, where this is, you know, where Ronald Reagan is ratcheting up the, his evil empire rhetoric and, and when uh, both sides are at the absolute zenith of their power with nuclear weapons and everything else. And I'm not sure everyone out there understands the level of training and the time spent in training before a CIA officer is assigned to do important work in a foreign field. Obviously, you're limited by what you can and can't say, but you can kind of broadly talk about how long and, and what kind of training went into what you eventually were deployed to uh, denied areas. Yeah, so the, the training program is very long. You know, it involves an orientation to the agency itself and learning about the different functions there, the different, at the time, directorates. Um, my class that I entered on duty with had people from all the directorates. That was kind of a new thing at the time to have an integrated class like that, um, which was great to get to know people who worked in other parts of the agency from very early in your career. That network proved to be very helpful. And then after the general orientation, um, you begin operational training, which includes um, working on a desk, supporting different field stations. It might include being exposed to other parts of the organization. Um, I had a, a short assignment in the Director of Science and Technology, for example. Um, then you go through your operational tradecraft training. After that certification, then you might get some specialized training depending on where you're going and also language proficiency. So it's several years before you're deployed to the field. You know, and I think that's something that's maybe misunderstood is, you know, the movies make it look like, you know, you, you're not allowed to say this, but I can, you go through the farm and then all of a sudden, boom, you're in Moscow, running agents. And the kind of dedication and, and time that goes into this is, I mean, it would be a very boring movie if you showed all the stuff that goes into it. But I think that, you know, this is another place where Hollywood does a disservice because, you know, you, it's not just you learn how to walk around a cocktail party and make people talk. It, it's, it's ridiculous levels of training, very much akin to special operations in the military. It is ridiculous levels of training and also an extraordinary amount of paperwork to document <laughs> the operational activities that you do. You know, for every hour you spend in an operational meeting or conducting an ops act, there might be 15 to 20 hours of paper documenting that activity um, after the fact because that meeting didn't happen unless it's thoroughly documented. Yeah, and that's definitely something that you don't see too much in front of Hollywood. It's like, all right, well, the next episode of the Spy Show is going to be paperwork. 
Yeah, <laughs> and, and approvals, various kinds of legal reviews and legal approvals. Uh, it, it's quite bureaucratic in a lot of ways. Well, I wonder, I wonder since you came in when you did, uh, you had a lot of the, like, the hardcore cold warriors who were on their way out when you were coming in. Were they cognizant of the kind of changes that were taking place, uh, particularly with, you know, I think of, you know, someone like Mar Marty Peterson, who, you know, as a woman case officer in Moscow, you know, how, you know, where someone like Donna Mendez is working her way up to chief of disguise not too long after that. Are, 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 was the old guard kind of still there and grumpy when you got in? And or did you learn anything from them? Uh, you know, could, could they see the writing on the wall at CIA? They were still there. Um, one of my primary motivations for choosing the career path that I did was because it was the, the height of the Cold War. And I was very interested in being part of bringing down the, the Soviet empire. Um, the, the, the old guard was definitely in charge. I learned a lot from them and yeah. I owe them a lot um, in terms of tradecraft expertise and the importance of not losing that art even after the fall of the wall. Um, they did influence my career and, and tradecraft standards continue to be an important part of what the agency does. Right. Well, you mentioned something that I was going to transition to anyway, so thank you for that segue. Because you'd worked your way up to middle operations management by the early 1990s after the wall had fallen. I'm wondering if you can tell us at least how the environment was in the Wild West that was the former Eastern Bloc, former Soviet Union during the time of the early to mid 90s. Obviously, you can't tell us specific nations that you're in, but just the broader under, you know, the, the craziness of that post-Cold War world uh, working at CIA had to have been fascinating. It was a very exciting time because you didn't know how far these relationships were going to develop in terms of partnerships for the future as the Soviet Union began to fall apart. Um, obviously, it was in the interest of the U.S. government to develop relationships with the former republics that were then becoming independent. And it was kind of like the Wild West. Um, you know, trying to cultivate relationships with people who had been our enemies in the past and you know, how much do you trust them and how much are they still working against you. It was a, an energizing time. It was super exciting, but we were all kind of wary of where it was going to go. Right. I think very few people give CIA enough credit for where we are today. I don't mean, you know, in 2020, but today as you know, as in, you know, the environment of the world, that the fact that every single former Warsaw Pact nation outside of Russia is now a member of NATO, and the, the majority of the former Soviet republics or have at least decent relations, and then of course the Baltics have great relations with the United States, that wasn't just the State Department, right? That wasn't just diplomacy. The CIA and the connections that were made had a big role in bringing together some of the, these relationships with these former either Soviet republics or former Eastern Bloc nations. A very big role. 
there there were countries in which the relationship between the agency and the host nation was the the critical relationship. State Department, they were tremendous partners with us. We had great collaboration trying to build these new bilateral relationships. Uh, I, I will say that the CIA did their share to, to build those strong bilateral relationships together with our colleagues from the department. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm obviously the State Department plays a vital role in all this, but I think that perhaps they get their, they certainly get their share of the credit for this when CIA was almost a silent partner. And I think that, um, I think, I think I'm okay that though, Vince, because the CIA usually isn't in it for the credit. Right. It's the silent service. So I, not many people that I know who were involved in those initial relationships are looking for recognition for it. Yeah, and I think that's where people like me, the historians, come into play. And I think that would make a, a fascinating doctoral dissertation is the role that CIA played in, in kind of reshaping the relationships after the war ended. You don't you don't have to crow yourself. I mean, that, that's, you know, the agency personnel, the ones, certainly the ones that done a career usually don't. Uh, but I think that there is certainly an untold story there of kind of, again, the, the intelligence, the mill-to-mill relationship's important too, right? The military played a big role in this also, and perhaps that story hasn't been told well enough. But I think, you know, those who, you know, were in there in the beginning from the intelligence side of things, uh, that story's been undertold. And again, I'm not asking you to tell it because, you know, you, you obviously are uh, kind of really embracing this idea, which is honorable, of it's silent service, right? We didn't do this for the recognition. I, I'm just more saying for the audience out there that if you won't say it, I will, and how important the agency was in actually fomenting these relationships. Yeah, I appreciate that. Let, let me let me ask you, because uh, you went from there um, a couple other places, but one of the most interesting things of, from your biography that I saw was what you were doing around and right after the 9-11 attacks, you were a recruiter for the clandestine services. And I'm wondering how insane must that have been? And, and really, were you thinking about your dad a lot during that time? Because the people coming in the door trying to join CIA after 9-11 was really what your dad did after right. Pearl Harbor, right? I mean, it's, it's drop everything and go serve your country. And so you're, you're dealing with this, I think, you know, the, some of the numbers are staggering if you believe the open source stuff. A thousand applicants for every job at CIA after 9-11. You know, it's just like you have this massive group trying to come in and, and you are really in a leadership position dealing with that in the days and months following 9-11. So that was a really amazing experience. I um, did a one-year rotational assignment to the recruitment center because I had been um, given a chief of station job and the incumbent was extending for a year. And so this was a good place to put me before I went out for that COS position. And I arrived at the recruitment center four days before 9-11 happened. Wow. So, you know, I was standing in the office watching the planes hit the World Trade Center on you know, the internal TV system. And from that moment, like 
applications and resumes used to be faxed in. And we would come in in the morning and the fax machine would have run out of paper overnight and the resumes would be piled up on the floor where they'd come flying off the fax machine printer uh, like every day. And there were some amazing people who were setting aside really significant careers, like even CEOs of corporations, to apply to work for the CIA. There were also a few um, wackos out there (laughs) (laughs) who were promising to do things on behalf of the CIA that the CIA isn't allowed to do. Um, But it was really very satisfying to talk to a lot of patriotic individuals who wanted to do the right thing for their country. Yeah, I mean, and that had to be, again, I, I, I hark, I think, back to the recruiters for the military right after Pearl Harbor and just you, you see all the f- the famous photos of like lines going around the corner. And obviously the CIA doesn't have recruiting centers where you just walk in and say, hi, I'd like to join the agency. But that's the kind of, this is the virtual equivalent of lines around the corner scrambling to try to join CIA after 9-11. And I think that that fax machine story is inter- you know great because that's really the only way to kind of visualize this is just like application, application, application. I mean, I, I, I know many people who their story and and we've interviewed them on Spycast where it was, well, nine 11 happened. So I joined. And so I, you know, I understand that that was just this huge influx of people during that time. All of those people who are reaching out and, and decide who legitimately had the qualifications and, who maybe needed a little more development. It was a difficult time. Well, let me ask you about that. You mentioned, and you can always talk so much about this, but maybe you can be somewhat open about that. Did you know what the qualifications were right away? Was there a time when you didn't necessarily know what the mission was going to be? You know, how things changed pretty dramatically for CIA after 9-11. It went from the world you knew, you know, which is, you know, recruiting assets overseas to give us information to, more of a counterterrorism, more of a paramilitary side of things. D- did you understand right away, or did CIA understand right away what kind of people it needed to recruit? Oh, I think so. I think that the demand for paramilitary experienced officers obviously was going to increase. You know, within a day or two, there were boots on the ground in Afghanistan, um, and they were CIA people. Yeah. So, the recruitment of people with those qualifications obviously was high up on the list, but those people also needed to be doing traditional operational things like recruiting sources to try to penetrate terrorist groups. Let me ask you about something that it really depends on who I talk to, the kind of response I get from this. I've talked to now a group of chief, former chiefs of station uh, and some of them said it was the most rewarding time in their career. Others said it was, of course, important to do, but it was a lot less fun than actually being an operations officer. You know, you, you don't get to do the really cool stuff anymore. And others actually have said the hardest thing about being a chief of station was that it was difficult to watch others do the job you were so good at and not want to micromanage everything. What, do you, what was your experience as chief and, and what was your management style? Were you very hands-on 
or you're somebody that trusted your subordinate? So that that's a great question because it kind of leads up to where I am today. Um, I really enjoyed being a chief of station because you had considerable authority to make decisions. You were pretty far away from the flagpole. And while, of course, you want to fully coordinate things, um, you had the opportunity to develop your staff and give people the opportunity to shine, maybe to take the lead on briefing visitors who came out. So I myself am kind of a hands-off manager. I deferred to my officers to bring things to my attention that they felt might be complicated and we would make decisions together. And if they involved me in their decision process and we reached a decision together, then I had their back. Um, if, if they acted independently without um, maybe taking their plan and reviewing it with somebody in the leadership chain of command, then sometimes they had to deal with the consequences if things didn't go well. Right. I, I tend not to be down, on, down in the weeds with the people who have been trained to do the job. Obviously, a, a first tour officer or a second tour officer might um, need a little more mentoring. But I was pretty hands-off, and I take a, a lot of satisfaction in developing other people and helping them to achieve their goals professionally. Right. Well, I think that's interesting from that perspective. Because, I mean, there are some chiefs that may not have the operational experience that you did, but you would think, I mean, if, if all of a sudden I was, you know, an officer in your station, and I knew your background um, even better than I do now because you know I would I would know the classified side of your background. I would think you would want to tap into that experience and that knowledge and say, look, you know, I, I, I want to be a chief one day. Was there that level of mentoring, not necessarily because you created that as a chief of station, but were there the smart officers who said, wow, you know, this person's got to had a great career. They're a chief of station in a pretty interesting station. You know, it's, you're not in somewhere that no one's ever heard of. You're somewhere good. You know, how can I how can I get there, and how can I actually use this person's experience to my benefit? There was quite a bit of that. Um, many agency officers are career savvy and are interested in benefiting from the experience of others. Tell you, I really found myself especially mentoring young women because at the time and even now, there were not many female operations officers with extensive field experience who were also married and had children. Right. So a lot of young women would talk to me about how can you have it all? How do you balance this? Who makes the compromises? You know, how do you make the decisions on where you go and where you might not be able to go? So I felt kind of an extra responsibility to help those young women who were asking those kinds of questions. Well, I mean, it's, it's again, good that there are people who are 
can swallow pride, perhaps. I, I, I'm just thinking of the kind of personality that goes to CIA. It tends to be pretty type A. It tends to be pretty, these are smart people. These are people who are already pretty accomplished, at least academically in many cases. These are people, if they've been deployed to a station, have gone through the training and have accomplished success during the training. And just the whole idea of, let me be modest enough, even though I know I'm pretty badass, let me be modest enough to say, hey, look, you've been here, you've done that, please let me know how like, I can do it better. And I think that's one of the things that really kind of stands out with, with the agency, uh, and you see this in the military a lot also, are people who know how good they are, but they understand that they can always be better, and always looking for a way or someone to talk to to help them get better. It is a culture that's pretty deferential in terms of respecting uh, grade and experience. Uh, I didn't find too much arrogance among the, the younger officers, really. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Well, let me ask you about possibly how that might have, have changed a little bit. Maybe it didn't, uh, because you were around at the beginning of the creation of an, an, an agency, if you want to call it that, an office at least, uh, that many have been somewhat down on uh, since it was created in, right after uh, the IRCPA, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004. And of course, that this is the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. And you were there very near the beginning, um, and you were there to kind of help create um, an interagency, you know, management staff, kind of like bringing together not just CIA personnel, but personnel from all over the IC. Was this a little bit like starting over for you, or, or how much did this really change the day-to-day of being an operations officer? It was actually a super positive experience for me. So I left a field command where I had been chief of station and I had developed an interest in a neighboring sort of denied area country. And so I was asked to go to the DNI to be the deputy mission manager focused on this particular country. So it was a great opportunity for me to learn about what capabilities all the other agencies in the IC could bring to bear against this target. And it allowed me to develop an interagency network that I still use today. Like I'm still friends with these people that were on the staff with us. Um, I had a chance to go around and hear capabilities briefings. We had an inter- interagency board that met regularly. We developed crisis management plans related to the target country 
um, to kind of set up processes for agencies to collect and share information when there was some sort of crisis related to the country. So while going to the DNI seemed theoretically to be like, oh my God, I'm going to this awful bureaucracy, <laughs> it actually was a tremendous learning experience for me. I'm very grateful for it. It broadened my perspective as an intelligence officer a great deal. And I really value having had that opportunity to do a joint duty assignment. Well, I, I would think that it probably helped you a little bit later on in your last duty assignment at CIA where not you weren't necessarily working with other agencies, but you're 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 leading an integrated team from throughout CIA, from Director of Science and Technology and Office Chief Information Officer and all these looking at technology. And I think how much did the work at DNI and working with different agencies help you come back to CIA? and deal with the, the hey, you could almost say it's gotten better, but you could almost say that the different directorates are, are almost like their own little ha little fiefdoms within CIA, their own little agencies. So did, did this prepare you better for taking on this joint operation? Yeah, it definitely did. I, I feel particularly the directorate of operations tends to um, value themselves especially highly and maybe um, not appreciate all the things that the other elements of the agency bring to the equation to make everything run well. That was the and, most diplomatic way of saying that I've ever heard. <laughs> that was extraordinary how you said it. Anyway, please continue. Yeah. So having already gone out and, and seen how the community benefits from understanding each other's capabilities, I came back to the agency realizing that there were parts of the agency I didn't know much about that I could um, bring together and help. I'll give you an example. So the office I was in was tasked with making sure that the director of science and technology was developing solutions that actually solved problems that the operators needed solved and that maybe they weren't just developing pet projects that um, wouldn't actually be of benefit to the field. And some of those solutions involved um, communications, for example. So by getting those people in a room together to talk about what the problems were that needed to be solved, um, helped make, make the agency much more efficient in terms of putting its R&D resources on problems that were current and also were anticipated for the future. That was also very diplomatic also, what you just said. The idea, <laughs> just, from preventing people who have been given millions of dollars to just play and actually have them build something we can use. That's, that's how I would all retranslate what you just said yeah, well, a little less diplomatically than you said it. Uh, I completely understand that. Well, that's, I think that's one of the, you know, that experience plus your time at ODNI, it really puts you in a position to do what you've done since then. And we talked a little bit in your bio about the fact that you worked for different uh, multinational corporations, you know, at the highest levels. Uh, and then you decided to kind of change careers. You, you went from being, you know, kind of VP level at these big companies to working for yourself, to creating this new organization 
um, and now writing this book. So what, what really led you down this path? Why, what made you decide to go off on your own and write this book and start this organization? When I left the agency, because I had been there since I graduated from college, I really didn't have a, a confidence that I knew what my skills were that I could bring to the private sector. So making that career transition from government to industry um, was stressful. And it involved a lot of self-analysis, self-assessment. You know, I had, had to try to understand what skills I brought, what my hard skills were, what my soft skills were. And I had to really think about what my, what inspired me, what motivated me to do my best work, what kind of work environment would I like to work in? What, um, what legacy did I want to leave behind? How ambitious did I want to be? The, the career transition process um, is multi-staged. And so I went from government to industry. I worked for a medium-sized engineering company. Then I worked for a small agile software development company, which was then bought by the massive company Accenture. And I worked for Accenture Federal Services for three years. So I had small, medium, and large business experience, which was awesome. I, I have so much respect for the people that I worked with. It was all super positive. But something else happened in my life. Um, a friend of mine asked me if I would help her son. Her son had graduated from a very prestigious university with a, a degree in business and economics. And he had taken the summer off after he graduated. And then he started kind of dabbling in a hobby that he had, which was um, developing custom software for high-end BMWs. And he found himself getting involved in sort of modifying cars and buying and restoring and selling cars. And like two years had gone by, and this guy had this great degree, and he found himself in an industry kind of working on his own where he realized that the people that he was working with were for the most part not very ethical right and where he felt like he was not going to be able to have a career but he he'd sort of gone down this rabbit hole of pursuing his passions and his interests but he'd lost confidence in himself and his ability to market himself to get back into the mainstream professional world. And so she asked me to, to talk with him, to see if I could help him with a resume, to see if I could help him understand what his skills were that were marketable. And I developed this relationship with this young man, which like kind of was life-changing for me. And I think it was ended up being kind of life-changing for him too. Um, we determined that he had these mad software development skills <laughs> that would make him a great data analyst. And so we, we worked on sort of specifying what languages he knew and he took some additional training 
And I reached out to my network and I, I got him a practice interview with a company that I knew. And they ended up hiring him as a data analyst. And he went there and he thrived and they promoted him to data scientist. He, um, you know, continued to educate himself, learn new skills. Now he's um, at a different company, but now he has a clearance and he's working on sensitive programs doing data science. And it, it was so personally rewarding for me to help him find his way that I decided maybe that was my next calling. And so I decided to get a career coaching certification and to coach people through career transitions for my next career move. And, and then this book comes around and I want, can, can you let the audience know a little bit about uh, kind of the format of this? Because it's not, this is not 300 pages of you talking at them. You did dozens and dozens of interviews of a who's who in former government officials. Uh, and, and that's really what led into this book. So can you talk a little bit about kind of what, what you brought together to bear um, on, on mission career transition? Sure. So if this book was my pandemic project. Uh, <laughs> I had started this book like two years ago, but the book was me giving career coaching advice and that's like all there was to it. But for me, like I was spending a lot of time helping to coach and mentor people who were planning to leave government. We all inevitably leave at some point. And a lot of my friends were doing the same thing. We all end up trying to help people who are putting together their exit plan. And I came to realize during the pandemic lockdown that um, this book would really benefit from the perspectives of a lot of other people from across the government community. So I interviewed 33 people from across government, um, 60 plus percent of them were from CIA, but there were also people from State Department, military, treasury, ODNI, NGA, NSA, and uh, you know, I asked them all the same questions, and they were so candid about their transition experiences, about what went well, about what didn't go well, about the surprises that they had, about the impact on their mental health and their physical health. In the book, they provide advice on things like resumes, on LinkedIn, on professional networking and, and how to do it and how valuable it is. And about the fact that when you first leave government, it's not a permanent decision what you do next. Most of us right. take several moves after we leave government. And it, it's just all about how you grow as a person and what you wanna learn how to do next. So the book really benefits from the wisdom of a lot of people who have successfully transitioned at various stages, you know, including people who fully retired out of government and why they chose to do that. I think what, what makes it most helpful from my perspective is, is looking at it and looking at the names of who you talk to and reading it. 
was that you didn't just kind of hunker down with like Mike Hayden and a bunch of other former directors of agencies who leave and have a you know platinum parachute. You know, there's a a three hundred thousand dollar job at you know Boeing waiting for them. These are people who, like you, yep. had, had to kind of figure out where their skills fit. They weren't necessarily household names. They weren't former directors. And I mean, there were there's a mixture of different levels of people getting out of government. And I think that to me was what, what, I, what I think makes it very valuable is that, you know, I don't identify with, you know, a former director of an agency. You know, I, I would identify probably with like a middle management type person. And you have that wide variety of people that you spoke to. Yeah, they vary from, you know, GS-14 diplomatic security officer to a vice admiral. Yeah. And everything in between, and you know, not just operational people, uh, also you know, support people, analytic people, you know, quite a variety. And they were super candid. I I really value the perspectives that they all brought to this project. Was was there someone you didn't know before that you interviewed? Was there anyone that you were like kind of like, tipped on, like, oh, you should talk to Bob? And you didn't know Bob, like some someone that you had a chance to meet through this book, or was this? Did you like flip open your Rolodex and say, "I'm going to call all my friends up and get information from them"? No, there were a couple of people that I had never met, or that I had met once. Um, I think probably one thing that I might change in this project might be to have even more diversity in terms of the agencies and organizations represented. Um, the book is a little bit CIA heavy because like that was my network, right? right? What, what Was there something, I mean, you've been thinking about this, you're a certified coach for, for, for career. Um, you, you know this information, right? You, you, you've, you probably weren't surprised by a lot of the advice that you heard, but were there things that surprised you? Were there things where you said, wow, even though I've had all this training, even though I've talked to all these people, that really kind of threw me, a, you know, through a loop when I heard what so-and-so said about transitioning? There were a couple of things that surprised me. I think um, the discussion about mental health surprised me because a lot of times that's not talked about even with your friends. Yeah. But the level of candor that came through and people talking about um, depression, anxiety, um, fear, it, it's real, right? A big life change like leaving behind a, a career of such significance course it's going to rattle you. It, 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 it's life-changing. And I, I really appreciated the honesty that um, people used in, in talking about those stages that they went through. Um, I, I, it, was, it was surprising and um, pleasing that people would be that honest. Well, and I, yeah, I, I certainly noticed that. And I think that's what's interesting, even more so from my perspective, is you hear a lot about that 
from the ex-military people because there is thankfully such a good focus at least now on you know things like ptsd and on things like mental health for veterans and others unfortunately it took a lot of veterans committing suicide and other things to get attention brought upon it but people don't think of either what you just talked about where you're going from making life and death decisions to a job where your most important decision might be what to have for breakfast and at the same time the cia has been in combat zones for the last 20 years and so the same types of post-traumatic uh, mental health problems and, and I'm, I'm trying to kind of skirt around this because you know there's so many different options and problems that could arise from being in these kinds of situations that aren't necessarily understood the same way they are in a military setting where so much attention and rightfully so but so much attention has been paid to mental health issues there are a couple things that contribute uniquely to the challenges that government officials face when they leave i mean one is obviously people have, have done some difficult jobs in horrible places in war zones that that's part of it another part of it is that People who work for the government tend really to be motivated by mission, by patriotism, by a desire to serve the American people. And so it can be kind of traumatic to look at life after that and, and ask yourself, what else can I do that will be as satisfying as that was? You know, I, I could go work for some big company and make a lot of money, but I'm not super driven by money. Like, that's not what makes me feel good. No, it's nice to have, but a lot of government people are motivated by things other than the material. And so for them to look at what comes next and how to make their lives satisfying, it, it can be challenging. One of the interviewees um, who was a diplomat described her experience after leaving as this like huge feeling of emptiness. And she met with a friend and talked about it and they, they realized that they missed feeling needed. Right. And I think that's a big one for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you would, people don't join the government to make a lot of money. That's certainly the case. I mean, you have to have, especially with something like CIA or like the State Department where it's it's not an easy life, right? I mean, I mean, people, again, understand that the military is going to be a rough life. You know, it's just there's movies about it. There's, you know, everyone understands that you're kind of eating dirt and being in pretty crummy situations. People don't necessarily appreciate how that happens also within the intelligence community life you know life away from family and lying for a living and all these other things that play a role in how you know you think about yourself at the end of the day and really how you think about yourself usually is i'm doing this because it's helping my country and it's a sense of duty and all these other things that kind of goes away in many respects when you leave uh working at one of these agencies so i i understand that so let me let me before i let you go let me ask you one final question because 
when I read this, well, sort when I saw this at first, when when I when I looked at the cover and said, okay, this is going to be a great book for people that are just gotten out, people that are kind of figuring, trying to figure out what their next career is going to be. And then after I finished reading it, I said, that's too late, not too mm -hmm. late. You should you should still buy it if you have. But the whole idea I think of this book is you get it way below before it's time to get out because it really lays out longer term planning and what you should start thinking about maybe even years before you're transitioning out of government. Well, I think that's right. Um, the, the book contains a number of worksheets to, to do the self-assessment, to ask the philosophical questions about how you see your life in, in the stage after government. But also there's a whole section on financial readiness and you know what your goals ought to be thinking about your goals um, there's even a monthly budget worksheet because a lot of people don't really have a good sense for what they're spending versus what they're taking in every month um, to help you plan for things like eliminating debt so that when you walk out the door that you've paid your house off or you've paid your cars off or you have no credit card debt so that kind of planning really needs to be done, you know, five to 10 years out. So that, that's really the audience for this is sort of 10 years out to just pre-departure. Right. And it's not just for retirees, it's also for people who choose to separate. Well, and I think that's, that's really important to mention also because there are a lot of people um, who don't, especially with generations today, you know, kids these days, I'm one of them, that they're not going to maybe spend 30 years at one place. They're going to bounce from place to place. They're going to separate after 10 years or after, you know, 15. In some cases, especially people who were forward deployed after 9-11, they're spending, you know, four or five years at, at CIA and then just getting completely burnt out. And so they, they're not going to be there until they retire. So the importance of this book like you just mentioned, I think supersedes the, you know, what do I do after 28 years at CIA? It's, you know, it can also be, what do I do after three or four years at CIA? And how do I move on to do something different with my life? Yep, exactly. Great. Well, the book is Mission, Career Transition, a Career Change Guide for Intelligence, Military, Foreign Affairs, National Security, and Other Government Professionals. It's available everywhere you buy your books, including the International Spy Museum retail store where you can grab a signed copy. As I said, Allison is a member of our board of advisors, so you can get your signed copy there. Allison, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us here at SpyCast. It was truly fascinating, and, and just your, your, your history of your family's service uh, is one thing that it's, it's really hard uh, not to, to really revere what your family has done for this country, so we appreciate your time. Well, thank you very much, Vince. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum, or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. 
head on over to cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to share your feedback now.